this is directly parallel to how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night he was betrayed. Right inside the redemptive event, there's a concern to codify how the event will be remembered and celebrated. And this is a reminder to us that our faith is put together in a certain way. At its very center, we have the great works that God has done for our salvation. In the Old Testament, of course, that's the Exodus, the story we're looking at right here. In the New Testament, it is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the center. That is the beating heart. And then around that is a process of remembrance, reflection, and ritual. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the order and the rhythm and the shape of gospel faith, Old Testament and New. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God reveals himself through certain acts, and then he codifies how those acts will be remembered, interpreted, and celebrated within the covenant community. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 11. The RMM plan has us looking at all of chapter 11 and about half of chapter 12 today. They've identified everything from 11.1 to 12.21 as a unit. And that is probably partly due to the lengths of the chapters involved. Chapter 11 is quite short, and then chapter 12 is quite long. And then it probably also has something to do with wanting to show the connection between the Passover and the 10th plague. Now, for the last couple of episodes, we've been working our way through a fairly major section in the book of Exodus that runs all the way from chapter 7, verse 8, through to chapter 11, verse 10. So, obviously, we're coming to the end of that section today. We've been looking at the great power confrontation between God and Pharaoh. God has extended this confrontation in order to judge Pharaoh And in order to definitively display to all the watching world his own supreme and unrivaled sovereignty over all things. That demonstration comes to a climax now in the announcement of one final and terrible plague. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, He will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Now, the NIV translates verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Meaning that this verse is intended to be heard in a resumptive or summative sense. And I think that's correct. Probably it is best to understand this whole encounter between Moses and Pharaoh to have happened at the same time as the one narrated at the end of chapter 10. So if you have your Bible open, look at that. Look at that scene. So Moses' anger, which we'll meet in verse 8, is probably related to Pharaoh's just having pronounced a death sentence on him 
in chapter 10, verse 28. The Lord had said that there would be one last climactic plague, and he had said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart so as to ensure that we got here to this last climactic plague. And now, just like God had said, here we are. That's likely the right sense of it. We notice also here that God knows how to restore what the enemy has taken. Nobody gets away with anything at the end of the day. Those who have stolen will be forced to repay. In that sense, the Exodus is also a foreshadowing of the final judgment. Now, as a side note, this is why the Bible commands the attitude of meekness. Meekness is almost synonymous with faith in the Bible because meekness understands that you don't have to fight and claw and set the house on fire to get what you deserve. Meekness understands that because of the final judgment of God, you will get justice. If you have faith in God, you will get mercy and justice. And that's what we're seeing here. Think of this mountain of jewelry as a sort of mass reparation. The Israelites are being justly compensated for the mistreatment and abuse they have suffered in Egypt. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I know we're fairly early on in the program audio here, but I wanted to jump in if I can, because I'd love to talk a little more about this idea of meekness. I think meekness might be the most misunderstood and most infrequently practiced of all the biblical virtues. Could you give us maybe a grade school level definition of meekness and maybe a few illustrations or examples so that we can get a better handle on this? Sure. Meekness is, of course, one of the Beatitudes that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then Jesus described himself as meek also in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. So Jesus was meek and he talked a lot about meekness. But of course, Jesus didn't invent meekness. It was something that was taught and commended back in the Old Testament. In fact, Psalm 37 is an acrostic poem celebrating and commending the virtue of meekness. Now, now, what is an acrostic poem, just in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with those? Sure. An acrostic poem is a poem where each new stanza starts with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It was a mnemonic device to help children memorize large bodies of material. So, for example, Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem celebrating the beauty and reliability of God's Word. So, like the first verse would start with A, the second verse would start with B, etc.? Yeah, in Hebrew though, right? So, instead of A, B, C, it's Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. And the Hebrew stanzas, of course, don't always correspond with our English verse markings, but yes, that's the basic idea. So, Psalm 37 is a 40-verse celebration of the disposition of meekness. Okay, but if I didn't have time to read all those 40 verses, how would you describe meekness to me in a single sentence? Well, I told my kids the other night at Family Devotions that meekness is what you'd get if you put gentleness, patience, and trust in a blender. Okay, yeah, I like that. That's what I'm talking about. Gentleness, patience, and trust. If we put all those things together, we get biblical meekness? Yeah, pretty much. Meekness is about being gentle. It is about not being at war. It's about letting God fight your battles. So to go back to the Exodus story, the Hebrews were slaves and the Egyptians were the greatest superpower on planet Earth. So a violent uprising was obviously out of the question. So the call for them was to trust in God to fight their battles for them. 
And you see that again and again and again in the narrative. So in Exodus 14, when the people have their backs against the Red Sea and the chariots of Pharaoh are advancing against them, Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent, closed quote. That's meekness. Meekness is about trusting in God to fight your battles for you. And then the patience piece is about understanding that God usually plays a very long, slow game. So you've got to be patient. You have to let him do things in his own perfect timing. You can't take matters into your own hands to speed things up. So we think, for example, of King David in the cave before he was King David, when he was just David when he could have murdered King Saul and taken his place as king over the land, which God had said he would do at some point in the future, David in that moment could have taken matters into his own hands to speed up the situation, but he didn't. He waited, and his patience paid off. That's meekness. And then meekness is about trust. It takes a lot of trust to let God work things out. It takes a lot of trust to march up to the Red Sea with no idea how you're going to get across. It takes a lot of trust to hide in that cave while King Saul is going to the bathroom. (laughs) That's a story you'll have to tell another day. Yes, Uh, that's a buddy trail. We're not going down. All right. But the idea is you have to trust. You have to believe that God really is going to come through and fulfill all his promises to you, even if it takes a little longer than you would like. That's meekness. It's about gentleness, patience, and trust. And it is basically the posture of every true believer making their way through a broken, hostile, and often very violent and warlike world. But it works. Because God is who he says he is. He fights for us. He restores what the enemy takes. He works justice and he keeps his promises. Praise the Lord. Amen. That is so good. I'm glad we took some time for that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So again, this is probably all the same encounter as the one narrated in chapter 10. Pharaoh tells Moses to get out from his presence. And he says that if he comes back, he will be killed. Moses says, fine, as you say, this is our last meeting. But know this, there will be one more great plague after which your officials will come down to me, come down the dais from where they're standing before you. They will come down to me and beg me to leave. Your people will pay us to leave. God himself will break our chains. 
He will move through your land and exact a heavy price for the enslavement and genocide that you and your forefathers have affected. He said that, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So, just as God had said, he would harden Pharaoh's heart, so that the power encounter would be prolonged, and so as to ensure that this last just and terrible plague would be enacted. Now, as I mentioned, the RMM plan has us reading the first half of chapter 12 as well. We pick up the story at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Let's just pause here and notice something very important. In verse 1, the text says explicitly that the Lord said these things to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. The location is given because it marks this as the exception to the general rule that all laws were given to Israel in the desert. I mentioned already that there is a certain gospel shape to the book of Exodus, if I can use that term. The first half of the book tells the story of Israel's redemption. The second half, beginning at chapter 20, verse 1, tells the story of the law that God gave in order to show Israel how to live as a saved people. That's important. Law comes after redemption. But this law, as it were, is given inside the climax of their redemption, its purpose being to show them how to remember, relate to, and commemorate their redemption. In a sense, it's parallel to what Jesus said to the disciples on the night he was betrayed. Luke 22, verse 19, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In both cases, a law is given, the keeping of which does not add to the work of their redemption, but that rather reflects upon and commemorates the work of their redemption. And I think that's important for us to see. We should also notice that this act of redemption represents a whole new start for the people of Israel. In verse 2, we're told that the Passover month will become now the first month of the year for you. The point is that salvation is like being born again. It's a whole new start for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, as well as for those who are born again in Christ in the New Testament. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story in verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the Passover meal is going to be a family meal. This is an interesting festival in the sense that there is no role here for the professional priesthood, which of course didn't exist yet anyway at this point in the story. 
the head of the household would function as the priest. He would select and prepare a lamb or a goat, a young male less than a year old. This event and the subsequent remembrance of this event is to take place on the 14th day of what came to be known as the month of Nisan, which would be in late March or early April, according to our calendar. The key is that it was to be at the midpoint of the month, meaning the point at which the moon would be at its fullest and brightest, which will become very important shortly in this story. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, when the lamb was killed by the head of the household, the blood would be gathered up in some kind of basin. Then that same person would take a stalk of hyssop, which is just a local herb that was apparently quite fragrant and the perfect length and shape for splashing and dabbing. So they'd take the hyssop and dip it in the blood and then splash and dab the doorposts of the house, thus marking the house as containing faithful and believing members of the covenant community. It was obviously a symbolic gesture. Douglas Stewart says here, The blood on the doorposts showed acceptance of God's plan for rescue and trust in his word, close quote. Well, that's a pretty good definition of saving faith, I would say. These are faithful people taking shelter under the blood of the lamb. The key line really is verse 13. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. All right, well, that's the gospel right there, isn't it? Old Testament and new. Thanks be to God. Now, as for the other elements of the meal, this is where it will be helpful to use your imagination a little bit. You have to imagine that sometime around 4 or 5 p.m., your dad killed and prepared the lamb and gathered its blood into a basin. He took the hyssop and covered the doorposts of your house with the blood. Then he lit a fire and basically barbecued the lamb. Then he told everyone in the household to pack up their things and to get dressed for travel, which you did while the lamb was cooking over the fire. Then a couple of hours later, when it was dark, you gathered together, standing and fully packed and dressed and ready to go, and you ate a meal together. With the roasted lamb, you had bitter herbs. This may have been a garnish on the lamb, or it may have been a type of side dish, a sort of salad, we're not entirely sure. And with that, you also had some unleavened bread, what we call matzos. 
As you ate, you started hearing the screams and hysterical wailing of your neighbors. You drew a little closer together and you ate a little faster because you knew that on this night, very shortly, everything was about to change. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Here in these verses, the focus shifts forward to how this night will be commemorated. It will be the start of a week-long festival known as the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It will start with Passover and go for a whole week, during which no one will eat leavened bread. You will remember that this night became a journey, became an exodus out of Egypt, out to Sinai, and eventually into the Promised Land. Now again, as already mentioned, this is directly parallel to how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night he was betrayed. Right inside the redemptive event, there's a concern to codify how the event will be remembered and celebrated. And this is a reminder to us that our faith is put together in a certain way. At its very center, we have the great works that God has done for our salvation. In the Old Testament, of course, that's the Exodus, the story we're looking at right here. In the New Testament, it is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the center. That is the beating heart. And then around that is a process of remembrance, reflection, and ritual. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the order and the rhythm and the shape of gospel faith, Old Testament and New. Verse 21, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. So this brings us to the end of the laws and instructions that the Lord gave to Moses and positions us to return to the story of the actual events of the night that changed the world. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I just want to make sure I've got the chronology right here. In chapter 11, we have the prediction of the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son. Then we have the instructions for the Passover in the first half of chapter 12, And then in the second half of chapter 12, which we haven't read yet, 
we have the actual event of the 10th plague, which happens while the people are actually eating the first Passover. Is that right? Yes, that's a pretty decent summary. So the people take the blood of the lamb that they've slain for the meal, and they take a hyssop branch, and they use that like a paintbrush to apply the blood of the lamb to their lintels and doorposts. And then when the destroying angel goes through the land of Egypt, he passes over all the houses that have been so marked and indicated. So while the Israelites are eating and cleaning up inside their homes, families are discovering and lamenting dead children outside in the rest of Egypt. Mm, Wow. I mean, that must have been just an incredible experience. And obviously it gave the Passover a real sense of spiritual significance, particularly for those early generations of Israelites. Yes. And, And of course, much the same could be said for the early Christians. I imagine that Peter never took communion without thinking of that night when the Lord took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks, broke it and distributed it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this as often as you eat of it in remembrance of me. He would hear those words and remember the events associated with that night. He would remember Jesus praying in the garden. He would remember Judas betraying him with a kiss. He would remember Jesus being arrested and beaten and turned over to Pilate. And then he would remember Jesus being crucified between two thieves on Golgotha. All of that would come flooding back into his mind every time he took of the bread and the cup. That's how these rituals are designed to function. Wow. Well, thanks for that. And we will look forward to hearing more about that in the weeks and the episodes ahead. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.